So good to sing with you folks, worship the Lord together with singing, and now we continue to worship God through the preaching and proclamation of His Word. Turn in your Bible, if you have one, with, uh, with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at the first half of this this week and then the second half in a few weeks. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. It begins, I won't read the whole thing, we'll look at it verse by verse in just a minute, but just the first verse, then what advantage has the Jew? Everyone assumes the Jew has some advantage, and the Apostle Paul is going to deal with that advantage to a certain degree here in this uh, section, and just what does that mean for the rest of us? To me, it, uh, it reminded me the Jews kind of like the first alternate. When I was in, when I was in high school... Um, my ninth grade year, I went out for the junior varsity basketball team. You know, I I thought I was a pretty good basketball player, and I could make that happen. And uh, after all the tryouts were said and done, I was first alternate to the team. Nobody likes being first alternate to the team. High school team, somebody's got to die, you know, before they're going to put you on the team on the squad. So I, I left even the thought of it and went and played for the YMCA. But anyway, just thinking through the, the first alternate position, it, it just reminded me there's so many times if you're first alternate, that means you're close, but not quite good enough. You know, you just not good. Have you ever gone through life feeling like you're just not quite good enough. I mean, you could convince yourself you're good, but not good enough. In a whole different context, suppose you were to go to hell, and they tell you in hell, yeah, you're down here, but you're the first alternate to heaven. If anyone gets disappointed with heaven, you're in. Would that make you feel good? No, because no one gets disappointed in heaven. So you're not in. Being good is not good enough. Many times I think we go through life cherishing like a first alternate position when it's really not playing on the team. It's not good enough. Every one of us here have a certain measure of goodness, but it's not good enough. And he ends this section that way. Verse 20, let me just jump to the conclusion. Because, he says, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. None of us are going to be justified by our goodness, our good works, our rightly keeping the right standard, the law of God. None of us will be good enough by what we do, Jew or Gentile. He's going to talk about the Jew to an extent, but he concludes by saying, you're not good enough. You're like the first alternate, but you, you don't get in by your good works. Let's look at it because everyone seems to assume, you know, if at some point God may return and pick the Jews as his first alternate. The rest of Romans will deal with this some more. But let's look at it as, as Paul brings it up here. Uh, 
last week we looked at chapter 2, verses 17 uh, to the end, and he, he began that section by talking about the Jew, saying, what do you boast in, Jews? Uh, you're God's chosen people. I get that. You have God's law. I get that. Um, you, sought to, you seek to live by God's law. I get that. Well, he's kind of concluding some of that thought when he gets down to chapter uh, 3, because in the end of chapter 2, he basically says, Jew, just because you are God's chosen people and all that doesn't get you into heaven. So he answers the question somebody might have in his audience, chapter 3, verse 1, well, then what advantage is the Jew? I thought there was an advantage. So he begins with that question. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? It's kind of like baptism earlier. What is the, the benefit of marking your child out? Is there no advantage? Well, he answers the question. He says, sure, sure there's an advantage. Uh, verse 2, great in every respect. There's an advantage. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So uh, he begins to answer, yeah, there's some advantage. There's a great advantage to having the law of God. A lot of people don't have the law. A lot of people are not even trying to live by the law of God. And it is a a law that gives us the character of God. It describes God's standard for his people. So there's a great advantage in living according to the righteous law of God. That puts us on a a different level. Sure, it's it's an advantage. Um, But advantage for salvation? Well... He goes and talks about that a little bit further. Verse 3. Let me just keep going. What then? If someone did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? So in other words, if you've got a Jew and the Jew doesn't believe, he's got the advantage of having the law. People are preaching and teaching to him. But um, if he doesn't use it, if he doesn't use his advantage, what does that do for him? Says, does that nullify what God is doing? God marked them out, but now they're not getting saved? I thought marking them out with circumcision was kind of a promise they would get saved. But now you're telling me they're not going to get saved. Does that nullify God and His promise? And he answers that question. Verse 4, may it never be. In other words, our unfaithfulness will never make God unfaithful. God will continue to be faithful. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true. Let God be found faithful. Though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. God's the judge. And so he's going to be justified when he judges as the one who is righteous. He doesn't do anything wrong. He doesn't do anything unfaithful. Um, Verse 5, so, you know, how is this fair? Verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Because I'm speaking in human terms. He's just trying to figure it out for everybody. Um, You know, how is it fair that God gives a promise, and then because of our unfaithfulness, we don't get the promise, but God gets some sort of demonstration of his faithfulness. How's that fair? Um, Let me read just a little bit further. He says, that's not unfair. May it never be, verse 6. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? God has to be righteous. He couldn't judge the world if he wasn't. It's perfectly fair for him to do um, according to his standard, the way he wants to. Our problem is 
we sin. Sin doesn't make us look better. Still makes God look fine. Verse 7 and 8 says, But if though through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory. So it's like God gets glory even when I lie. He says, um, Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Paul is saying some people think that we are preaching this salvation by grace in such a way that you can sin and God's still glorified. He says, that's, that's slanderous. That's not what's happening. We do sin, and God is glorified. But our sin is not causing God's glory. God's just using his, our sin to magnify himself and say, I'm the righteous one and you're not. Um, it doesn't make God unfair. It doesn't make God unrighteous. And it still makes man evil. We're the ones who have sinned. We kind of try to get out of it. It's our way of saying, you know, how could our situation be so bad if, you know, God's always righteous and we're always evil? Well, if you're still struggling with following this, he, he comes back to a conclusion again. Verse 9. So what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greeks are all under sin. So we're not, the Greeks aren't better than the Jews. The Jews aren't better than the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews had advantage. They were chosen first. They were given the law first. But they choose to sin. They choose to rebel. They had an advantage place. But they choose not to use it. So it's of little advantage to them. And it's little advantage to us. Um, our, all of us need righteousness. And we're not proving that we've got it. None of us have it, whether Jew or Greek. All we prove is that God's got it. And God alone has it. And we need that righteousness in order to enter into His righteous presence. Well, what then? Verse 9 and 10. Uh, we're not any better than the Jew. Jew's not any better than us. And He begins to describe our condition under sin. Um, Jew and Greek alike, we live on this death camp or in this death camp called earth. We are all in the death trap of sin. Jew and Greek alike. He'll get to a conclusion in chapter 6. He says the wages of sin is death. None of us escape death. It's a death camp that we're living in. We will die. Why? Because all have sin. Jew and Greek alike. And then he begins to explain some of the depth of this sin. We've sinned with our minds. We've sinned with our wills. We've sinned with our desires. Let me start showing it to you. Verse uh, uh, 10. He says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Well, let's begin with the understanding. So our minds are corrupt. He's going to show us our minds are corrupt, our desires are corrupt, our speech is corrupt, our relationships are corrupt. We're totally, thoroughly corrupt. But he begins with our mind. We're, we're thinking wrongly. And we're thinking wrongly because sin has distorted our picture. 
We saw even chapter 1 of Romans that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We don't think right because we suppress the truth of God in our own unrighteousness. Let me share with you a few other um, verses just on our mind. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 17 and 18. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Another descriptive passage on the corruption of our mind. It says, do you, do you realize, you and I, we have wrong thinking? You know, it reminds me of that passage in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man. We think we know it right, but the end thereof is death and destruction. Here God is calling us ignorant, lacking understanding, futile in our thinking. We're not getting where we need to go just by reasoning together. Our minds are corrupt. Um, Colossians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages for Christian education. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says, In whom, speaking of Christ, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not in us. Not in our books. And not in smart people who've lived before us. But in Christ. The way we think about reality is by taking God out of the picture many times. There's this quest by the non-Christian mind. The non-Christian, the atheist, the atheistic philosopher. They... They struggle with creating foundations for morality without God in the picture. How does some physical mass explode that creates us and earth and establishes in the process what is right and what is wrong? What is the standard for their morality? And as they, as they go down that path and try to, to establish that, they can't agree. They're futile in their thinking because they have abandoned the treasure of wisdom and knowledge that is found in Christ. That's what Paul is beginning to show us. What does it mean to be corrupt? What does it mean to be a sinner? One of the things it means is to think wrongly about society, about life, about morality. Our thinking is skewed. It's obscured. We're not thinking rightly of God, and that changes everything else. So back to Romans 3. Our minds are corrupt. Well, not only our minds, but our desires. Uh, No one understands. The next phrase, no one seeks for God. We don't have the right desire. If God has created us and God has gifted us, we should be seeking Him for worship. But says we're not doing that. No one seeks after God. 
That's the problem. It means there's something wrong with us. We're corrupt. If someone is willing to save our lives and we don't seek him, there's something wrong with that picture. He says, yeah, there's a corruption in your desire. You desired the wrong things. John chapter 6, verse 44, four, I won't go there. It says, no one seeks after God. It says, no one comes to God until the Father first draws him to himself. We don't seek after God. Good news is we have a God who seeks after us. And he does come after some of us. And he does draw us to himself. But we're so corrupt, and not only in our thinking, but we're corrupt in our desires. We don't seek God. We don't think about God the way we should. We don't seek God with our lives. Verse 12. We've all turned aside. Together we have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Well, he gets down to our speech. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Think about the description. Their tongues, they're deceiving. They're not speaking truth. They're speaking lies. But think of the throat as an open grave. Um, I was sharing with someone this week. I was talking about not knowing if this person was a Christian or non-Christian. I said, what's their language like? What? I mean, one of the ways we can a lot of times determine corruption is by just listening to people talk. You remember James 1, verse 26? Let me share a couple of verses just to think about the corruption of our speech. Um, James chapter 1, verse 26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion, it's worthless. It's pretty straightforward. It's told us that we are deceivers. And one of the ways we deceive is by saying corrupt words and saying, but yeah, we're religious people. He said, no, that person's religion's worthless. Because they don't even have the power within them, the, of God within them, to control the way they speak. We were corrupt in our speech. If we're regenerated, our speech changes. God saves not only our minds, but He saves our desires and He begins to save our speech. And our speech is different after uh, Christ. And we should be able to, to see that. It's an evidence. Uh, another great passage I, I was reading this week through the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 17, um, verse 20. Let me just share with you because it was kind of my private time with the Lord this week. Uh, verse, Proverbs 17, verse 20. Uh, he who has a crooked mind finds no good, and he who is perverted in his language falls into evil. It's another way of saying, if you find somebody whose language is really corrupt, they're, they're evildoers. They fall into evil. Now, to take it kind of even to another level, look back at verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to, destruct, to the destructive tongue. It made me really evaluate, what do I listen to? Who do I listen to? Because an evil person seems to find delight and joy in listening to evil people. And specifically to listening to wicked lips. What do you listen to on the TV and the radio and the internet? Who do you listen to? 
Do you find that you have a heart that delights in listening to people that lead you to destruction? People who encourage divorce, people who encourage adultery, people who encourage fornication, people who encourage lying. That's who you're listening to? Then you fall into that trap. And you are declaring a corruption from the heart. You're thinking wrong thoughts. You're having wrong desires. And it's coming out of your mouth. Because we tend to emulate. When when I have to, to read articles that are so vulgar and so vain... I'm constantly praying, Lord, I'm reading these vulgar words, but don't let me repeat them. Because you've regenerated me. And there is a purity and there's a righteousness that transcends all of this. And I don't want to be corrupted again into that which you've brought me out of. I don't want to be separate from the world, but I don't want to speak like the world. I want to speak like my Savior. My Redeemer, who has taken the time to redeem not only my mind and my will, my desires, but also our speech. And our speech is, is, is clearly different. It's, it's, it's a giveaway. Uh, verse 15 through 17, our relationships are giveaways too. Verse 15 says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in the path. And in the path of peace, they've not known it. That's what I mean by relationship. Instead of having peace with one another, our relationships with one another are just full of quarreling and bickering and arguing. But the people of God, those are people who have given up the quarrelsome ways and not only speak differently, but are enabled to embrace one another differently as those who are brothers and sisters uh, in peace. Not only our relationship with one another changes, but our relationship with God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In our corruption, we don't really fear God, except in dread at times. We'll fear Him in, in the context of worship. You know, uh, if you call this a hall, worship halls are not typically filled with unbelievers. Why? Because they don't fear God. If non-believers are here, it's because somebody in the room has probably invited you. You're here because of invitation. And a lot of times, the non-believer comes to a church service for self-interest. Perhaps I can get something out of it. Perhaps it would be of some benefit. Perhaps it will make my mom and dad, somebody happy. I will get something by showing up. Instead of showing up to give something towards God. To give Him praise. And adoration. The corrupt mind doesn't think that way. It's those who have been regenerated that have. So the consequences. What does it mean to be a sinner? A sinner in our minds, our desires, our will, our speech, our relationships with one another, our relationships with God. Well, where does that lead us? Verse 19. Now, he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, he's talking primarily to Jews at this point. So when he says, we know, he's again indicating he's got a Jewish audience. And he's got a Jewish audience that lives under the law. In other words, they know the law of God. So he says, we know. We're people who have chosen the law as our standard. And we people who have that law as our standard, uh, we know that every mouth is going to be closed 
And all the world will be accountable to God. At some point, someday, there's judgment. And God is judged. We know that. And the end result, verse 20, is no flesh will be justified in His sight. So when we get to the end of the line, God's going to be judged. And those of us who have read the law, we know that we will be found lacking. All of us fall short. That's part of the next chapter. But that's, there, there's an accounting. There's, we're all accountable. Um, it's going to happen. Um, there's nothing like the delusion of good works. So many people think, oh, but I've, I've done this. I, I've said that. I've, I've thought that. And it's a delusion that good works will somehow, at that moment of judgment, that God was going to say, you know, you, you did do some good things. I, let, let me change my mind. God's not going to do that. We have deluded ourselves into thinking that way, and that's, that's not what he's saying here. The law of God is not a checklist that gets us into heaven. He says, we all know. We, those of us who know the law, those of us who've been reading our Bibles, we all know that we fall short. We, we can't measure ourselves with the law of God and start checking off. Good, 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 good. We've we, we got enough. We're in. The law of God has shown us that it's not a checklist to get us into heaven. Rather, the law of God has shown us it's a benchmark to show us we fall short. The standard's up here, and we're always low. We're like the first alternate. We never are good enough. Jew or Greek doesn't matter. Says, we know that. When will we face that? So when you, you look at the reality of what he's trying to say, I'm trying, okay, so why are you telling me this? We all fall short, and we're not going to make it. I think he's telling us, and we don't have time to just keep going, plowing through Romans. We'll look at that in a few weeks. But he's telling us this to let us see we all need a Savior, no exception. I need to be saved by Christ. You need to be saved by Christ. Your children need to be saved by Christ. Your neighbors need to be saved by Christ. There's no exception. He's a good person. I know he's a good person. Yeah, that's great. But he always falls short. None of us. I mean, we can examine our lives and we say, yeah, my thinking's wrong and my desires are wrong and my speech is wrong and my relationships are wrong. I can see that. And I fall short. Because I fall short, I need somebody outside the system. We, we, we all die because we're all born in sin. Wages of sin is death. Is there any way to live? Is there any way to live forever? Not in the death camp, it's not. Not under this death system we're under. But perhaps if there's somebody that was born outside the system, that was not born under sin, perhaps someone could come and rescue us and Good news, there is someone who was not born of Adam and Eve into this death camp of sin. He was born a virgin. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He was born outside the system. He was born of God, the only begotten Son of God. And though we didn't seek him, 
He came to seek and to save those who were lost. Hallelujah. And he came to crush the powers of sin. He came to demolish the dominion of sin. He came to forgive sinners, to pardon sinners, and to grant sinners a righteousness from outside the system. He alone earned. He said, I will give you my righteousness. I will give you my life. I will resurrect you from the corruption of sin and take you to the glories of the Father. That's our only escape. That's what we all need. So if you're like me, you feel like, I just don't always measure up. I feel like a first alternate. Everybody is in that boat. None of us are good enough. Only Christ can save. I think it's just a good time when you read a passage like this to say, thank you, God, for amazing grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a righteousness that's not my own, that has been given to me. And if you haven't had that gift, you should be crying out, God, give me what I can never earn. Give me Jesus and his righteousness. I need that or I die. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and your truth that just drives home so clearly that we need Jesus. We need the Savior. We need his righteousness We need his works. We need his speech. We need his mind. We need his desire. We need a relationship with him and his relationship with God. Father, grant that to us. We're hopeless without you. We're helpless without you. We're so grateful for your love for sinners. Seek us, Lord. Find us. Draw us to yourself, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.